0: And you thought vinyl left. You're listening to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. Everything vinyl. Hello, Vinyl Community. This is David Bianco joining you here on the Vinyl Community Podcast. My YouTube channel is called Safe and Sound Texas Audio Excursion. And as I approach my one-year anniversary on March first 2022 and nearly 2000 subscribers to which I thank all of them. I am reflecting back on what made me a record collector in the first place. I've been a collector of music since 1963. I was 6 years old so you can do the math on my age, no problem. And I started just getting 45 RPMs because back in the day Uh, Mainly, it was AM radio, really, that was the predominant uh, type of listening you had to do at the time, little transistor radios, Uh, and we had a big station uh, near where I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, uh, with call letters WLS, uh, 890 AM or the big 89. And so uh, I grew up listening to the top 40 coming through that station. We also had a local station in Gary, Indiana, where I grew up. And if you've heard of Gary, Indiana, you might have heard that because the Jackson 5 came from there. So, uh, yeah, that's where Michael Jackson and his crew started. Uh, they actually lived on Jackson Street, ironically. Now, it was named after the president, President Jackson. It wasn't named after Michael Jackson. have to clarify that for you. So I grew up on pop radio, and I started buying singles when I was six years old. So, I've been around a long time, and I've been collecting records since that time. Uh, In the 80s, when CDs got big and vinyl quote-unquote died, I didn't get rid of mine. Uh, Sometimes, maybe much to the chagrin of my wife, because I would carry these uh, big boxes of records from state to state as I moved with my career. And so, uh, it's been a part of my life for many, many years. The other part of my life related to this, of course, is the equipment that plays vinyl or plays CDs, the speakers, the amplification, uh, the turntables, the cassette decks, uh, the CD players, the SACD players, all of these technologies that have gone through the decades uh, I've been using and uh, evaluating at a personal level. And I've come to realize that everything we see and hear about this equipment is, of course, in many ways, just the opinion of the person who is reviewing it or looking at it. And that's great. But a lot of things are written in very factual terms, as if this is the speaker or this is what you should buy and something else you shouldn't buy. Everybody's hearing is different, and uh, your capabilities are different in terms of the range of frequencies that you hear. Uh, There also is the capability of processing that through your eardrums and into your head. And, you know, there's a lot of nuances involved. And once that gets to your brain and you process it and how it sounds, uh, it has a certain sound to you. And that is really the key here, is really getting individualistic about deciding these things and thinking through what really matters to you and what is of value to you. And then trying to match that to equipment combinations that yield the best sound for you for the money. Throwing more money at something isn't always the answer. We see that in government every day, so we know that's true. So the reality of the matter is there's a lot out there that we can get if we know what we're looking for. And what we're looking for isn't just by a brand or isn't just by a reviewer's commentary. It's really by you being able to listen. And that takes me to where we were years ago where you could go to these listening rooms at these stores and listen to different combinations of uh, amplifiers and turntables and speakers and switch back and forth and uh, really do some A-B comparisons. Uh, A lot of those brick and mortar places are gone today and you're expected to pick a speaker through what? Listening to a YouTube video, reading a review, uh, going on Amazon, Um, I'm not listening to anything at that point, really. I'm not listening to the actual speaker. I'm not listening to it in my home with the acoustics I have. So the next best thing is a sound room of some kind where at least you can put the pieces together. Well, unfortunately, that's harder to do these days. So what we really need to do is to understand how sound matters to us. In other words, Do I like deep thumping bass? Do I really like crisp highs? Do I want really deep mid-range to be able to hear voices clearly? Do I listen to classical? Do I listen to jazz? Do I listen to rock? All of those things change the formula a bit. And so it's really traveling down that road of evaluating what in fact is relevant to us and what our priorities are. Then we have to look at how much do we want to spend, right? And then we look at sources. Are we going to do vinyl? Are we going to do CD? Are we going to do cassette tape? That's coming back. Are we going to do reel-to-reel? I mean, there's a lot of options here. But the bottom line is we have to really think about where our tastes lie. Just like we pick genres of music we like or dislike, we also have a belief about how we like things to sound. So as you can see, my experience in all of this tells me that there's a lot of things out there where people are looking at information. And again, as we grow and have the Internet and all of this, it becomes even more uh, convoluted in terms of what's out there and available and what your choices are. So we really do need to focus a bit on this. I realized early on when I was involved in starting to move into what I'll call higher end equipment uh, when I was in high school that, yeah, equipment made a huge difference in sounds. Different kinds of equipment did. But I always knew and was uh, schooled that the biggest impact in sound that will occur in a system, uh, where we're talking about a vinyl system, of course, is in fact the phono cartridge itself and the speaker's because those two represent the transducers uh, and the electronic transformation that occurs in sound. And making changes in one or both of those uh, will, in fact, uh, bring about the biggest obvious change in sound signature that the music can have. Again, this gets back to really understanding what type of sound you enjoy, because there are certain cartridge models and brands that have uh, a little better bright side or high end. Some are stronger on the low end. Some are stronger in the mid area with voices. And then some really are very neutral. And um, we have to then pair that with speakers that are more compatible with That range of frequencies that are best suited by the cartridge. And all of this makes up kind of the painting, so to speak, of sound that comes out that then has to be consumed by your ears and your brain to determine whether or not that really sounds good to you. Uh, And again, it's a very individualistic journey. I think that, you know, everybody, when they talk about whether it's an album review or whether it's a review of any equipment, we always have to say to me, this is what I experienced or this is what I heard. Or in comparison to something else, I thought this was X or Y in comparing the difference between the two. Uh, But it is, of course, our impression of what we hear. And it isn't always 100% the case that all of us will have the same experience. So it's a matter of buyer beware, do your research, and understand, again, most importantly, what sound signatures really are sweet to you, are the sweet spot to you. And that makes for a very enjoyable journey to get to that Place where you have things kind of tweaked in and tuned in. Uh, back in the seventies, uh, you, you know, I got into a lot of the the rock music, the Who, and and the um, uh, the Led Zeppelin er, area, uh, and and that kind of music, and the harder stuff that came in. Uh, I got into. Uh, Queen and Kansas and I remember Queen and Kansas I had bought their first albums and had some friends and shared the first albums of both of those groups and people were going ah they're not going to do anything they're nobody that's 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 not going to be anything, and obviously we know, you know, decades later, of course, uh, they both painted their careers, and, and it really is, in fact, something that as we go and journey, I've always felt like I had an ear for things that would be great 45s or single releases, um, as time has gone on, we don't have that as much. Uh, singles versus um, uh, the LP. The LP represents um, you know the whole work of art and a lot of songs are played off of the LP with uh, you know some some focus on singles or are the releases that are the most uh, popular out of the album. But I mean the 45 was really the meat and potatoes of the industry back in uh, the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and that really was how the promotional start of a record began and how, in fact, it led into people then buying an album because of uh, a single's uh, status on the charts, uh, the amount of playtime it got in the radio, uh, and those type of factors. And, and having been a DJ myself in college and for a few years after leaving college. Uh, I I know just how important those particular things were in the industry for making or breaking a band. And as you've probably heard, there are, in fact, bands that uh, had songs that we call one-hit wonders. Uh, The band came out of nowhere, so to speak, and then they had a hit, and then you almost pretty much didn't hear from them again. You know, when you think of a song like My Sharona by The Knack, I mean, that was a huge hit. Some people call it the killer of disco, that that really got things back into a real rock kind of a mood again, uh, moving away from disco. But, you know, those bands come and go. And the ones that are tried and true... Uh, there's less of those. So um, I- I've lived through all of that. I can still visualize seeing The Who on their uh, Who's Next tour uh, playing Won't Get Fooled Again and having uh, Pete Townshend fly across the stage on his guitar during that loud scream toward the end of Won't Get Fooled Again uh, at uh, one of the big Chicago arenas. Uh, you know, just great things and great bands, and a lot of these bands are ones that I don't want to see 20 or 30 years later because I saw them when they were in their prime, and uh, to me, it's a bit of a letdown and a bit unrecognizable uh, in some cases uh, of the effort they make or the membership of the band that they have. So uh, as you as you live through those. Uh, times and you experience uh, things like Jethro Tull, Ian Anderson, probably saw uh, them more than any other band uh, back in uh, the 70s. Uh, and just the showmanship and the, uh, and the great work that Ian Anderson does uh, during a show. Uh, watching Chicago play with the Beach Boys at Chicago Stadium on the evening of my high school graduation. Uh, They were touring together because the Beach Boys had done some backing vocals on uh, Chicago 7. And, uh, you know, just to experience all these different bands, uh, seeing Led Zeppelin in concert, uh, seeing Journey in concert... Uh, I, I, could name them. Uh, there's so many to name and, and those days, you know, the, the golden age of, of rock and roll really, uh, as I see it. And that was all on vinyl. I mean, uh, that was, uh, the introduction of the cassette came in the early seventies and we made mixtapes and things like that. And that was, uh, that was cool and, and was great for portability in the car, of course. Um, in going through all these different media formats, and then there was eight-track, which was in my mind a bit of a disaster uh, because it basically the the way the tape looped and the time limits, you literally would have songs cut in half while it changed tracks, and that just really broke things up terribly. Plus, the tapes would mangle and tangle, and you know, once they did that, the eight-track it was done and over with. Uh, so, um, but going through these different formats, buying the uh, record in different mediums, you know, buying license after license after license, so to speak, uh, when you had these format changes from, you know, from vinyl to cassette tape to 8-track to, uh, to CD to um, the smaller uh, CDs or the mini-CDs. Uh, and then, of course, we, we get into that, into streaming and get into the the digital file uh, aspect of things. And, and so the whole evolution and revolution of this and how it came about and how vinyl basically had a dark age there in the 90s where it basically faded out and, and very, very little was made at that time. And uh, to see it come back is is just amazing. But I kept my records the whole time. Uh, I didn't sell them. I didn't uh, get rid of them. I carried them state to state. And uh, there are many times now where I look back at that and say, you know, that was a good decision. Because I know a lot of people who are very regretful for the things that they they lost in that activity of uh, transitioning uh, from vinyl and leaving it. Uh, And then to see it resurge back and think, well, I had that record, I had the original of that record. And we're starting to find, I think, that as we compare uh, some of the reissues that have come out, a lot of the originals, or OGs as they're called, stand up very, very well to uh, these reissues that have come out. Not 100%, but the originals had a certain... Uh, flare to them. Uh, the other thing they had the benefit of is that at the time they were made, you know, whether it was the mixing or the producing or it was the engineering and the mastering, uh, those were done at the time when the band was actually interactively working to make the record and put their stamp of uh, artistry on it. Uh, and so anything that comes off of that or changes that. Uh, potentially, you know, makes a a little bit of a different impression than it would have. It's just like touching up the Mona Lisa, right? So so a lot of these originals are really the best ones that you can get. Uh, They generally are all analog because that's the equipment that was available at the time. Uh, The tapes were fresher um, and less worn. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, so we have that as a another reason why OGs can be stronger in terms of the quality, because in fact, that's about as good a copy as exists, because that is hot off the press or hot off the, uh, the 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 engineering booth where it was actually mixed. And and so we see that those hold up pretty well and that tape over time degradates, um, has issues. Uh, if it's run a lot uh, through because of a lot of pressings being made off of it, um, the wear factor, the oxide wear, these are all things that affect the state of analog tape. And some of the reasons why there is a move to capture those tapes and put them into a very high-res format like a a DSD-256 to to store that file, to store that data, uh, to pull in that analog signal while the tape is still usable. Um, Now, we all know that whenever you convert one uh, signal to the other, whether it's analog to digital or digital to analog, there always can be, you know, some potential loss there. But the capability of digital now is so high that the accuracy is, is very, very nuanced. And um, it's really a matter of how a record is mastered. Is it mastered for vinyl? A lot of uh, files are taken digitally and then um, they are cut as if they're being being—they're making a CD out of it. And that's not really correct because vinyl is a whole different medium uh, in terms of the way it works and the way it needs to be mastered. So these are things that over time one gets to understand and, and can appreciate the fact that these uh, technicalities, so to speak, really do, in fact, uh, give us the outcome of what we hear. And sometimes we can easily tell when something was done hastily or sloppily or, you know, they obviously didn't take their time. Um, So we do have the work of um, these mixing engineers that are really the firebrands of the industry now who are, in fact able to deliver the goods on a lot of these higher-end pressings and even, you know, pressings that are fairly low cost because uh, some of these labels are spending the money to use these uh, higher-grade people. Uh, One that comes to mind is Rhino. Rhino has used uh, people like Kevin Gray. They've used people uh, at Sterling. They've used Chris Bellman. And, you know, so they've really gone out of their way to try to pick the cream of the crop to get the activities of the mastering process done by someone who's going to give it a really good effort and bring to bear uh, an outcome that is um, worthy of, in fact, the market. And uh, so we see a lot of that now, and it's really good to see. Because we're getting um, really high quality value in the market. Because prices are going up on vinyl. So we have to recognize that. But we we don't want to, you know, if you're just buying base level records at the, you know, $25, 30 35 $40 range. As opposed to the audio file where you're going in 60s, 70s, hundreds of, of dollars. Uh, you know, getting a good Good result. Uh, there are some fabulous recordings that are you know thirty dollars and less uh, that have come out in in the last few years um, that really strike a chord at value and a high sonic capability, and that's really where we want to be, where we can uh, buy more records because we have more disposable income. There are. Audiophile file labels and audio file records that come out. Uh, I think we've all heard, to some degree, the mobile fidelity scandal uh, in terms of using a digital step in their process, uh, which wasn't known before. Uh, but still, a lot of those records that they put out sound very, very good. Uh, in spite of that, you know, the old blindfold test, you can't really tell and, and that's great. But we do have the analog purists and we have the analog uh, manufacturing purists like uh, Chad Cassum at Analog Productions. Uh, and, and those folks really uh, work hard to bring to the community something that is special. Um, the series coming out from Steely Dan, uh, I mean, just really special sounding um, records that just Uh, leave no doubt about what the best pressing out there is. Now, is it worth $150? That's a whole different discussion. Um, Everybody has to make those judgments on their own. But the ability to have high quality like that, again, the UHQRs of the mobile fidelity days in the early 80s were 50 bucks. Um, and so um, if you take 50 bucks uh, in that uh, time and you compare it to today, that's about $170. So the $150 for a UHQR for, let's say, Steely Dan is, is, is not out of line with what was charged in the 80s for the UHQRs at the time. And frankly, their packaging and, and covers and that were nothing to, uh, write home about. So, um, I think we're getting a good value, um, at $150 for those. And some of the MoFis are at hundred or 125. Uh, those are, you know, uh, ones that have a digital step in them, but many of them have a great sound to them. So we're in this very strong headwind of prices coming at us, and technology growing and and bringing us to where we want to get the most out of what we buy. And we are in fact caught by this, this uh, situation of inflation, which has now affected more and more labels of raising prices uh, by 10, 20, 30% um, just overnight, literally. and And so the judgments have to be made. Still a lot of great used records out there to buy, a lot of great ones. And again, when you buy those, know who you're buying from, make sure you get a good value, make sure the grading is accurate uh, so that you know you're getting exactly what they're advertising for that particular record. But when you find one that is well-maintained, a VG+, plus or better, then you're pretty well home-free with those OGs. In many, many cases, they are at or better than some of the reissues that have come out. And again, a lot of those reissues have digital steps added to them um, versus them being pure analog, which many of the ones, let's say pre-1983, were, were you know definitely pure analog. And that, again, has its own unique sound. So again, buyer beware, understand what's out there, understand where you're at in terms of what you want to listen to and how you want it to sound. And these things all will come together to where you can have an enjoyable listening experience because that's what we're all after. So the various vinyl pressings do in fact sound differently. Um, It can be from plant to plant. Uh, When a record is released and it has a fairly decent amount of units to to go out at the beginning, um, there are multiple pressing plants that had to be put into service to be able to meet the demand. And, of course, in, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were plenty of record plants all over the world, let alone in the United States, which would facilitate that. And that's why certain uh, pressing plants have a certain reputation, uh, positive or negative, towards uh, the effort of the quality that com- comes out of them uh, to the public. Uh, what we did have also in the 80s was a, a company called Gem Products or Gem Records, which was a distribution arm which brought in Uh, LPs from the UK or Germany or Japan into the United States. So we started to get our first whiff of what that would sound like. What did the Germans uh, uh, press? How was the quality? In the UK a lot of the best bands were coming out of the UK. Uh, You know, the whole British invasion and then a lot of the really stronger rock bands uh, were coming out of there as well. And um, so we got a taste of what those records were like, along with uh, J- Japanese. I mean, the Japanese presses were very unique. They had the Obi strip on the side uh, of, of many of them, which made them very desirable. Um, and so we got to basically hear what our our colleagues in the other countries were hearing. And we realized at that point, a lot of the pressings we had from the U.S. were problematic. They had issues. There was a recycling of vinyl done in the 70s because of the gas crisis. And then in the later 70s, uh, the start of some of the audiophile labels came about with Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs being one of the more early predominant ones. Uh, Nautilus Records was another one that had come out uh, in the later 70s, early 80s to compete. And so uh, we had these uh, various uh, improvements being made uh, both in the vinyl compound that was being uh, used on these records, what we call virgin vinyl at the time, very clear. Uh, clear in the sense of not dirty, you could hold it up to the light and see the light through it—a smoky uh, kind of color through the vinyl. Uh, and then the pressings, in the case of Mobile Fidelity, were actually cut at half speed, which meant the original tape was played at half speed, and then the um, the cutting head and the, and the turntable on the actual uh, lacquer cutting machine was at half speed. Uh, And there were certain advantages to that, uh, being able to trace a more detailed um, uh, cut uh, because of the slower speed. But there were some issues with uh, some frequencies because basically um, when you're running at half speed, you're at different octaves uh, and things of that nature, which then when you go back to normal, uh, you, um, you lose something in the translation, in the process. Kevin Gray has a great uh, video on YouTube about his opinion on half-speed mastering, uh, which kind of explains it a little more. Um, these audiophile labels sought a higher price for the product, but gave you a uh, quieter experience with the vinyl and off, often a superior sound uh, with the actual um, recording. So these were the, the ways that things evolved to give us even better sound because the source is extremely important. If the source isn't any good, then um, everything else after that is going to be some kind of cosmetic way of changing it to make it pleasing. Things like equalizers, for example, which, you know, it's always a debate about using equalizers. I have always run everything pretty flat on mine, meaning at the 12 o'clock position, no boost to it, and uh, left it at that. Um, To me, that's the most accurate sound. Um, And more the way it's intended, although, you know, of course you could bring up uh, your bass or your treble to uh, enhance something maybe that's deficient, but I I have always been one to just run it at its normal uh, mid uh, setting because I feel like I want it to be a more natural experience of what the sound is like. In closing, the one caveat that I always like to make is whether it's my channel or my opinion or my videos or anybody else's, these are a matter of subjectivity, what we hear and what sounds best to us on the equipment that we have, and so that always has to be taken into account. Getting a variety of inputs and then seeing whether there's some strong commonality Not 100%, but a very large percentage, 80% or better, is often a bit of a way to know whether or not that information is sound. No pun intended. We often are the ones then who have to come to the final conclusion of what sounds best to us. And really, that is all that matters when we're investing our hard-earned money. And that is something that I have learned over the years. And it is even stronger now with all of the Internet that's out there and all of the opinions that are out there. Uh, One has to be careful sometimes and really decide who aligns most with the experience that we have. Because most often that will be probably closest to match our opinion or be closer. And that's all we can do we are going by reviews when we buy vehicles and all sorts of other things as well. But again, test driving is really the best way to know whether it's going to work for you. So again, I really enjoy the history, and I enjoy sharing it with the folks that are out there, those that watch the channel, and those that come here to the Vinyl Community Podcasts. I wish you all well, and thank you very much for giving me this almost one-year anniversary on my channel on the internet, Safe and Sound Texas Audio Excursion, and I look forward to bringing you more of these Vinyl Community Podcasts. Take care, everybody. We cover it all. We cover it all. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Vinyl Community Podcasts. And on Twitter at VC Pods. See you next time on the Vinyl Community Podcasts.